Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello. If you are an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. In accordance with ACPE standards, we must disclose the relevant financial relationships prior to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for more information. My name is Jenny McCabe, and I'm a clinical pharmacist at Tampa General Hospital. Our guests today are Madeline Hudson, Janice Steven, and Cassandra Votrubo. They are all solid organ transplant clinical pharmacy specialists at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. In this episode, we will be discussing some basics of order verification with regards to immunosuppression medication, what to do when you see immunosuppression in your queue. Welcome, everyone. So jumping right in, we will start with our first topic. When a solid organ transplant patient is admitted, what are important things we, as a pharmacist taking care of the patient, want to consider? This is a really great question, a very important question. So when we have patients who are admitted that are solid organ transplant recipients, we really want to be thinking about what's the reason for admission. Are they admitted for an infection? Are they being admitted for rejection? Is this a cardiac issue? We really kind of want to hone into what's the reason they're here, because that's going to kind of give us all of our differentials. But also we want to be taking into consideration what type of transplant they have. Is it a dual organ transplant? Is a single organ transplant? How long ago was their transplant? This is going to kind of cue us into potentially some of the possible reasons for what their primary admission reason is for. And then also thinking about what's their current kidney function? What's their current liver function? How is overall their systems doing? Um, Depending upon how far out from transplant they are, we also want to be thinking about what induction agent was used when they were transplanted. So if they were transplanted two weeks ago, we need to be thinking about a lot of different things compared to if they were transplanted 10 years ago and potential ramifications of that. Um, We can also then tie into um, if it's an infectious, is it because they were recently induced with a immunosuppression agent? What is their current immunosuppression? That kind of a thing. To kind of add on to that, um, if they are a patient that was recently transplanted, some of the more common uh, opportunistic infections could be something that we consider. You know, the most common prophylactic medications being Bactrim, uh, Valgancyclovir for antiviral coverage, plus or minus an antifungal agent like nystatin or clortrimazole or fluconazole, kind of depending on where in the United States you are um, are practicing. We also want to make sure the medications are appropriately dosed given their renal function and given their current uh, symptoms and uh, what's going on in the clinical picture of the patient. You also want to consider, are these medications, these prophylactic medications, could they be causing any of the um, chief complaints that the patient is being presented with? We see, um, very commonly, we see cytopenias with valgancyclovir. We see hyperkalemia with Bactrim. We see transaminitis with fluconazole. Other things that you want to consider are therapeutic goals of their immunosuppression. The most common immunosuppression regimens being tacrolimus, uh, mycophenolate, and plus or minus prednisone. 
you want to consider the formulation of these immunosuppression medications, the patient's ability to take oral medications, are they able to take oral medications, are they experiencing nausea and vomiting, do they have oral access, and then lastly, another thing that you want to consider is the timing of the immunosuppression. So immunosuppression timing is very important because the calcineurin inhibitors like the tacrolimus that are most commonly used in these patients are uh, monitored via trough levels. And so typically hospitals will have, you know, standards of uh, orders of when they want these medications administered. So here at Mayo Clinic Arizona, we do 8 a.m. in the morning and 8 p.m. in the evening, and their trough levels are ordered for sometime between 6 and 7.30 in the morning so that it's an appropriate trough level. Um, you want to make sure that uh, the patients, if if they're kind of in that in-between time, when was their last dose of medication, so that you could appropriately time their next dose. Right. So, Janice, you mentioned route of administration, which kind of leads me into my next question. What do you do if a patient is NPO? That's a really good question. And um, it's definitely something you want to consider when you get an order in your queue. Um, one of the most important things you want to consider is how strict is that NPO status? Um, is this someone that has a G-tube or that's a still an appropriate route to be using? Um, or is it someone who is an absolute strict NPO? It could be a scenario also where maybe we are strict NPO, however, allowing immunosuppressant medications. I know oftentimes um, that we, we may consider as appropriate um, so as not to further disrupt their immunosuppressant regimen. Um, so that's one question that's important to answer um, first off when you're going in to look at an order and determine is this an appropriate formulation for that patient to be receiving at that time. It's also important to be aware of what formulations are available for our common immunosuppressants. So, for example, with our mycophenolate, um, which is a um, common immunosuppressant used post-transplant, this does come as an oral formulation, capsules and tablets. It comes as a suspension as well as IV as well. So if it's someone who maybe has a G-tube and that's appropriate to use, maybe the suspension would be an appropriate choice for that patient. But if it's a strict NPO patient, then we might need to move towards the IV route. Some important things to consider, for example, is with the IV route, if this is a two-hour infusion and it does require D5W line flushes both before and after that dose. So it's an important thing to look for if you do see that order come across your queue. For both the uh, suspension as well as IV. This is a one-to-one -one conversion with um, mycophenolate, mofetil, or Cellcept. Um, uh, you should also be aware, though, that there is another formulation of mycophenolate available, mycophenolic acid, that's also called myfortic. And this is a delayed-release formulation. It's a delayed-release tablet. It cannot go down the tube. So in that case, if you had someone that came in and that was their home medication, ultimately we might need to consider changing them over to either the Cellcept solution or potentially to Cellcept IV, mycophenolate mofetil, that formulation. So at that point, it would be important to note that the conversion between those two is not one-to-one. -one. So for a dose of 1,000 milligram for Cellcept, that would be equivalent to 720 milligrams of the myfortic. 
So you may need to be doing some consideration of alternative formulations, um, especially in those cases where it's a medication like Myfortic, which we know we can't put down the tube. So another example would be for tacrolimus. We have so many different formulations available to us. We have within oral, we have the immediate release formulations as well as the more extended release longer lasting formulations of Embarsis and Astrograph. But we also have granules, we have sublingual, and we have IV formulations. So if NPO is kind of a strict NPO, we aren't able to do anything through any tubes of any sort, then we are kind of looking at sublingual or IV as our last resort. Our sublingual is going to be a one to two ratio. So one sublingual equals two of an oral formulation. So essentially, you'd have to do that half conversion to be able to get to your sublingual dose just because of um, the formulation and how it is absorbed underneath the tongue. And there is kind of an extensive process that most hospitals have in terms of how the nurses actually administer that to our patients. In contrast, we have the IV formulations, which are very, very nephrotoxic, and these are kind of our last resort. We try not to do IV tacrolimus for our patients unless we absolutely have to here at our institution and a lot of institutions that I know of. Some do still choose to do it, but it's very, very closely monitored. In these situations, it's actually a one-to-four ratio of IV to PO, and it's given as a continuous infusion in a dedicated line, making sure that you're not drawing labs out of that line not doing anything except giving this infusion to the line. And this is going to be a non-PVC tubing. If we do have a G-tube available to us or some other method to be able to do a solution type of a thing, we used to be able to take and open up the tacrolimus capsules and dump it into and make us a little bit of a solution or dump it down a tube. We do not do that anymore. Instead, what we have available to us are granules that can be dissolved and then placed down a G-tube. They can also be taken orally for those individuals that have difficulty swallowing tablets or capsules, excuse me. This would be an option to use as well. And if we kind of move on to the next CNI, we have our cyclosporin. This one is a little bit more tricky simply because we don't have as many formulations available to us. And it should be noted that there is a difference between different formulations of cyclosporin. So we have a modified formulation and a non-modified formulation. The modified formulation is the newer version, and it's the one that's kind of a little bit more utilized now and preferred by most institutions, but it's really important to pay attention to what the patient is admitted from home on versus what we're giving in the hospital because those are not interchangeable and you want to make sure that you're verifying the order to match what is given at home or recognize that if you don't have both formulations within your institution that you are appropriately notifying the providers and monitoring those levels and recognizing that they're not a direct conversion and there's not really a true conversion to utilize in that situation. Similar to our tacrolimus, we try not to use the IV formulation of cyclosporin. However, if there aren't any other options available to us, we do do it as a 24-hour infusion, and it's about a third of the dose of the immediate release oral formulation that can be used. And then lastly, if we're thinking about our steroids, we typically give our patients prednisone. Uh, the nice thing is that prednisone can be crushed up and typically put down a tube. And so that makes it really easy if we are able to put things down a tube on patients. But if we don't have any oral options 
our tubes available to us, then we can use methylpred instead of our prednisone. And just remembering that that is a five milligram to four milligram conversion. So five milligrams of prednisone to four milligrams of methylprednisolone. Thank you, Madeline and Cassandra. So moving on to our next topic now, what are some of the common side effects with mycophenolate and tacrolimus? So kind of as we mentioned before, mycophenolate and tacrolimus are our two main anti-rejection medications, and they are f- by far the most common uh, regimen that are that's seen among all the programs in the U.S. With mycophenolate, one of the major side effects that we see is myelosuppression, as well as GI intolerances, and this can be nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. One of the first things that we want to consider is, is it dose-related? Should we lower the dose to see if that helps either the myelosuppression or any GI intolerances that we might be experiencing? If the dose is lowered and those kinds of things are not going away, then you want to consider another formulation of the mycophenolate, which would be myfortic. As Madeline mentioned earlier, myfortic is a delete release tablet version of mycophenolate. It is not a one-to-one conversion, um, but we can work on conversion if we needed to switch it to myfortic. If that is something that is not an option either, then what you want to consider would be um, azathioprine, which is an older, you know, immunosuppression medication that was used um, back in the day that we don't use very often, but there are some instances that we do um, use azathioprine. You also want to consider, you know, how far out are they from transplant? Is it, is a single drug regimen appropriate for them or not? Um, But that's kind of more complicated. The next medication that we want to look at is the tacrolimus or um, the calcineurin inhibitor of choice. This medication, biggest side effects are headache and tremors, and these side effects can actually be associated with the level. So sometimes if our level is too high or much higher than the um, therapeutic window that we want it to be in, just lowering the dose can help these kinds of side effects. Another side effect that we commonly see with tacrolimus is hypomagnesemia. So I would say a majority of our patients are on magnesium supplementation. Um, Going back to the headaches and tremors, if lowering the dose didn't help, another thing to consider is a different formulation of the tacrolimus, which would be the long-acting version of the medication. So Envarsis or Astagraph. There is some evidence out there that the Envarsis can help uh, tremendously with the tremors. So that would be our first option. But something that you do want to consider as um, more of a urgent side effect uh, would be seizures. So if a patient experiences seizures on tacrolimus, that would be a reason to get them off of tacrolimus completely and not even try or not even consider the long-acting versions. At that point, you would consider a different CNI like cyclosporin or um, changing the regimen around completely. A lot of good information. Thank you, Janice. So switching gears a little bit now, um, what are some of the most common drug interactions with anticipated treatments? The most common one by far is definitely going to be related to CYP3-4, as I'm sure you can anticipate. 
So when it comes to our drugs like tacrolimus and cyclosporin, these are medications that are heavily metabolized by CYP3A4. So our medications that are either CYP3A4 inducers or inhibitors are obviously going to play a major role when considering a potential drug interaction um, with these medications. So medications that you would anticipate to potentially result in elevated concentrations of your calcineurin inhibitors, as well as potentially other immunosuppressants that we maybe aren't quite focusing on in this episode, such as your mTOR inhibitors, um, could be um, ones that you would anticipate that would increase levels would be like diltiazem, verapamil, amiodarone, um, your you could potentially see an impact with macrolides as well. But the, the key one that to focus on is your azole antifungals. So um, whenever you see an azole antifungal come across a cue in someone that's on immunosuppressant, immunosuppressants, we always want to kind of think about the impact that that's going to have on that patient's concentration and the potential need for a dose adjustment of their immunosuppressant as a result. Um, so um, we tend to see more of an impact with the azole antifungals like posaconazole and voraconazole having a more significant impact um, versus fluconazole, maybe not quite as much until you get up to higher doses of maybe 400 milligrams or higher. However, um, it is still important to kind of take that into account when seeing those orders come across your screen that there likely may need to be an adjustment made to that patient's immunosuppressants as a result. Um, another notable one that is more timely is related to ritonavir-based therapies. So obviously this is usually found in HIV-based regimens, but um, it is also part of Paxlovid, which is used for COVID. Um, so we've been seeing a lot more of this um, over the past couple of years or so um, with the initiation or the invention of Paxlovid, which is ritonavir-based. Um, unfortunately, the problem with ritonavir-based med medicines is that they are act as major boosters, and oftentimes we're needing to have up to sometimes a 99% reduction in patient immunosuppression regimens. So their TAC dosing might need to be reduced down to a once-weekly regimen. So it's quite a significant interaction. So it's definitely something that's not taken lightly if it needs to be considered in a patient. Um, and obviously, we do try to use alternative therapies if, if possible and if clinically appropriate in those patients. So just please be aware that ritonavir is a major interaction um, versus if you had um, CYP3A4 um, inducers, things like phenytoin, um, phenobarbital, um, rifampin, those are all things that we would anticipate would ultimately reduce the concentrations of these drugs. So also may need to lead to some empiric adjustments of those uh, immunosuppression regimens. Mycophenolate interactions have to do more so with absorption. We know that mycophenolate can bind to divalent cations, and this can prevent the absorption of the medication itself. So we always counsel our patients that if they are taking any ca uh, divalent cations, such as calcium and magnesium, which as we mentioned earlier, majority of our patients have hypomagnesemia with the program or tacrolimus that they are given, it's important that the patient separate out these divalent cations from the mycophenolate by at least two hours. Typically, we do our mycophenolate at the same time as our tacrolimus, so eight in the morning and eight in the evening. And so for those patients, we try to time the divalent cations for lunchtime. 
in order to ensure adequate separation from the mycophenolate. All right. And now the last question I have queued up for you guys. When a patient has a disseminated infection, should you hold their immunosuppression? This is a really fantastic question that I get asked by other pharmacists all the time, by some of our residents that are on service with us, whether it be a provider-based residence or pharmacy residents. So this is a really common question to be asked. And really, we don't necessarily want to hold immunosuppression entirely in these patients who have, even if they have disseminated infection. So with transplant, there's this really fine balance or a teeter-totter between keeping our patients immunosuppressed enough to be able to prevent rejection while also making sure that we're not giving them these life-threatening infections. And so we constantly are having to do this kind of teeter-totter balancing act of it. And a lot of different components go into decision-making of how to keep that nice and balanced. And so in this situation, when you do have a disseminated infection or really any types of infection, we want to look at what the severity of the infection is. And we most likely will kind of minimize the immunosuppression to some point, but it really depends on how severe the infection is, how it's being treated, and how the patient is clinically doing. That'll impact how much of that immunosuppression we're going to end up taking off. That being said, we typically won't take off everything, but it is not uncommon for us to transition patients to, say, monotherapy with potentially just tacrolimus. We might decrease that goal from what would be their standard goal of something a little bit higher to a lower level goal. That way, they're still getting a little bit of immunosuppression in their system without being too much. And the reason that we don't want to eliminate all immunosuppression is because it's actually been found that the immune system tends to rev up during infection. And it's very common for us to start to see some type of kind of rejection happening either at the tail end of infection or right after infection happening. And so it's really important that we are monitoring the organ function this whole time and that we're also using other forms of surveillance to make sure that these organs are staying nice and healthy and that we don't have some underlying or simmering rejection happening during this process. And then we need to make sure that after this infection has been treated and the patient is returning to kind of more of a stabilized normal health that we're making sure to then ramp up these immunosuppression back to where they were before, or if it was potentially because they were too immunosuppressed and that's why they ended up getting this infection, then we need to recalibrate that teeter-totter and find that balance again and meet kind of somewhere in the middle with it. And so the answer is no. Don't take away all immunosuppression. Keep something on board, and it'll be really dependent upon each individual patient as to what that something would be and what their clinical case is. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you to our guests for such a great topic and discussion. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider and see you next time. Thank you for listening today. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education for listening to this episode by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcasts. Please note that the continuing education credit expires two years after the date of this episode is published. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, 
rate or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.